0: Let me pray as we begin this morning. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So this summer, we are going through the book of Zechariah. Zechariah many of us gathering here this morning don't have much knowledge of the book of Zechariah some of you have been wondering if this is a trick question on a quiz and there's not actually a book in the Bible called Zechariah it is a book in the Bible it's just not one that's very heralded or studied Zechariah is not memorialized in children's Bible stories or best-selling adult Bible studies. He's one of the minor prophets, and to be fair, most of the minor prophets don't get a whole lot of airtime outside of the prophet Jonah, which works well for for, uh, our children's ministries. We don't embroider verses from Zechariah on our wall hangings or sing worship songs inspired by his message. But why do we do that? I mean, the designation of minor prophet does not mean that the content of Zechariah is minor. It just means that it's a shorter book than some of the other prophets who have longer books. I think Zechariah is a wonderful, rich book in the Bible. My goal this morning is to introduce you to the book of Zechariah and its main message and to begin our study of his prophecy. So a little bit of context, a little history here, so hang with me. Zechariah's prophecy comes to the people around the year 520 BC. That's 19 years after the first Israelites, first Jews, returned to Jerusalem from their exile in Babylon and in Persia. There was a a decree from a leader named Cyrus who allowed them to come back. The people of God had been in captivity for 50 years in Babylon, forced captivity, exile. And when Persia overtook the nation of Babylon, some Jews were allowed to return to the holy city of Jerusalem. And when they first returned, they were excited, but then they found that the city was in shambles. It was in ruins. So, a man named Zerubbabel, I'm still waiting for one of you to name your firstborn child Zerubbabel, but Zerubbabel was commissioned to be the foreman of the rebuilding of this temple in Jerusalem, and he began that construction in 535 B.C. And this was vitally vitally important because, remember, for much of Israel's history, the temple was the physical representation of the presence of God. So any new beginning for this people in this land, in this city, the temple was of paramount importance. It was a sign of God's presence among the people. So the foundation for the temple was laid within a year or so. But the people became discouraged. They became discouraged by local politics. They became discouraged by the fact that this new temple seemed very much doomed to fall short of the glory of Solomon's temple. And to add to this, many Jews, family, and friends had decided they didn't want to return to Israel. So they stayed in Persia. The morale of the people was pretty low. Construction was suspended and people began to just get on with their lives. They began to settle in the area and make new lives for themselves. But they were living in this in-between place. They had physically returned to the land that God had promised them, but there was so much more in their life that needed to be rebuilt. Not the least of which was their relationship with God after nearly two generations of exile. And so... God sends a man named Zechariah and his contemporary Haggai to the people of Israel in 520 B.C. with a message for the people that were discouraged, who felt in this in-between place, who were looking for new beginnings and wondering where to begin. So that's the context. And over these summer months, we're going to go in, in, in depth into this lovely book and hear the entirety of Zechariah's message to the people. And we're going to ask the question, How is the book of Zechariah still speaking to the church here today? And I think we're going to find that it speaks powerfully as the summer goes on. We could have chosen other texts uh, to go through this summer. So why Zechariah more specifically? Let me just put four things out for you, a little rationale for why we're doing what we're doing. First, it's a really engaging book. It's a super engaging book. The very popular Bible Project videos, which you can find on YouTube, they describe Zechariah as a wild ride, which is why we use that image of a roller coaster. It's a roller coaster journey of different visions and prophecies and poetries and narratives. Some of the prophetic literature in the Bible can feel a little heavy. Some of you know that if you've ever tried to read through some of the prophets uh, cover to cover. It can feel stagnant along the way, but the book of Zechariah actually moves at a pretty good clip and it keeps us engaged all summer long. Second thing, Um, Zechariah was really important to early Christians, to the earliest Christians in the church. Zechariah is a well-quoted book in the New Testament. So while it might seem obscure to us, it was profoundly significant to the early church. It's quoted directly seven times in the Gospels, and it's alluded to almost 70 times in other places in the New Testament. So we see Zechariah highlighted directly in the Gospels in the image of Jesus as a shepherd king, And then most prominently on Palm Sunday when Jesus rides into the city of Jerusalem on a donkey. That comes from Zechariah. But more importantly, Zechariah casts a vision of the coming Messiah, which is super important for the gospel writers in the New Testament as they followed Jesus of Nazareth, who they recognized as the Messiah, and as he walked and talked with them on earth. So these texts, they were cherished by the early church. And I think if the early church cherished them, we should be cherishing them as well. Third reason why we are doing this is that it's a relevant message to us today. There's a tendency to think with prophetic literature in the Old Testament that it sort of leads to Jesus and then it's sort of fulfilled and it's over, Um, that those words sort of end when Jesus comes, but that's not the case, especially with Zechariah. What Zechariah offers us here today in 2023 is not just truth about the Messiah, who we name in this place as Jesus of Nazareth, But he cast a vision for the coming kingdom, and in particular, a vision for the time when Jesus will come back to earth and make all things right. And that's why so many of Zechariah's visions are alluded to in the book of Revelation. So we're going to be tying those two books together. One of the things that we've discerned is that many of you here in this church deal with discouragement, and you're looking for hope. Zechariah can provide that. And also that many of you Seek hope and understanding in the promise of Jesus' return to come and make all things right. And Zechariah can provide that as well. And then the fourth reason is we get to kind of do this together. We as your pastors, we've not studied Zechariah extensively prior to this sermon series. I think I had one lecture in seminary, and I kind of forgot it. Uh, So we get to read this with you and and learn with each other about this book. We believe that Zechariah provides a fresh vision which is part of the name of this sermon series Zechariah and a fresh vision and we're excited to receive that fresh vision together so with that context and that rationale uh, I'm let's get started let's get started in the book of Zechariah Zechariah's wild ride begins much like your favorite roller coaster would start you get strapped in and then you slowly begin to push off before that big climb so Uh, I'd invite you to stand for the reading of scripture if you have your Bibles. We are in Zechariah chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. Hear God's word for us this morning. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, son of Edo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your ancestors. Therefore, say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your ancestors to whom the former prophets proclaimed, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return from your evil ways and your evil deeds, but they did not hear or heed me, says the Lord your ancestors where are they and the prophets do they live forever but my words and my statutes which i commanded my servants the prophets they did not did they not overtake your ancestors so the people repented and they said the lord of hosts has dealt with us according to our ways and our deeds just as he planned to do Word of the Lord, thanks be to God. You can be seated. So Zechariah, in the weeks to come, is going to give us a compelling vision of the coming Messiah and the kingdom to come. But in order for the people to be able to receive those visions, that vision that's coming, to experience the riches that God desires for them, there's something that they have to do which is introduced in this passage. in order to introduce the overall message of Zechariah, We focus today on one word, and that's the word of repentance. Repentance is kind of a scary word for so many of us. For some of you, it may conjure up images of hellfire and brimstone preachers, of maybe having to stand up in front of a a group of people and list off all of your various sins. And truth be told, repentance is rarely a welcome thought, as it's so regularly associated with feelings of guilt, shame, of not doing enough, not measuring up. So Zechariah's blunt message to begin this book with nary a mention of forgiveness or grace is even on the best occasion sort of difficult to hear. Maybe it's not what you wanted to hear on, a, sun, on a, a summer Sunday morning. But I think we feel this way only because we have an improper understanding of what repentance is. Repentance, after all, is not feeling bad about yourself or saying I'm sorry a million times. Rather, it's about a reorientation. It's about a change of perspective and direction. It's about a commitment to turn and to live differently. And our short passage helps us understand what repentance is and why it's so necessary. Let me walk through it. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to walk through verse by verse here. Verse 2 says, the Lord was very angry with your ancestors. That's what he starts with with Zechariah. Um, God begins speaking the, to this new generation of Israelites by looking at past generations. Now, when it says that the Lord was very angry, this is not the kind of anger that we so often see between humans. Hateful, contemptuous, out of control, reactive. That kind of anger is, is sinful. But God's anger is principle in Scripture. It reveals his passion for what is right. So the majority of references to the anger of God are found in the context of of the relationship that he has with his people, that covenant relationship, that vehicle of relationship between God and his people. I want to remind you that our relationship with God is not a one-way relationship where we simply receive from him. We are called to be faithful to him. And when God's people are persistently negligent in their end of that relationship, the Bible says it stokes an anger in God. I don't believe that's towards the individuals in particular. I think his motivation towards us is love, but I think his anger is towards sin. It's towards the broken relationship and the consequences of it. So God is asking these Israelites to be honest about why they are where they are as they're surveying this city that's in ruins. It's because your ancestors turned away from God, and they adopted false idols and false gods. And because of this, God had to send them away into exile into Babylon. There are indeed consequences for broken relationships. But, quickly, thankfully, there's an opportunity for transformation and for something new. Verse 3 says, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I'll return to you. Return to me. The Hebrew word for return is shuv, and it's, a, it's in its imperative form, so you could translate it as, you must return to me. You have to, and then I'll return to you. Shuv is a beautiful word. It quite literally means to turn 180, 180 degrees, to recognize where you are now facing, to take your shoulders and move them in the opposite direction, and to start moving but this is not merely a word about location it's not primarily about our physical bodies because remember these israelites have already done that they've turned from babylon and they've moved to the holy city they've moved their bodies physically to that place this is primarily an emotional and relational return and there's a dual nature in this return it involves turning from something and turning to something else in our hearts in this case the call is to turn from a lifestyle of evil and self-gratification that the previous generation modeled for them, and instead to turn to a fresh start in their covenant relationship with God. And then verses five and four, uh, five and six, asks three rhetorical questions to outline the result of this call to repentance. He wants the people to reflect on the negative examples of the of the pre-exilic generation and those Jews in exile and ponder how they are going to respond now that they're receiving the exact same words. These people may feel unsettled now, but Zechariah reminds them that God's word is constant through the ages. It's consistent. It's unchanging. And though the generations may change, his word does not. Human existence is ephemeral. That disobedient generation died in their disobedience. Those prophets who faithfully shared their word, they died as well. And these people now have an opportunity to respond rightly to that word of God right here and right now. And then, good news at the end of this passage, verse 6, it says, So the people repented and said, The Lord of hosts has dealt with us according to our ways and our deeds just as he planned to do. This is kind of miraculous if you read the prophetic literature of the Old Testament. People very rarely listen to the prophets, and it's even more rare that they respond to the prophets in a positive way. The people actually agree with God's assessment that the disobedience of their ancestors did overtake them. And they essentially say, the punishment that you gave to our ancestors was fair and it was good, and we don't want to do it again. We don't want to do this again. We don't want a repeat of this history. So this is how the book of Zechariah starts. It starts with a call to repentance. And as I read this passage, I've got three ways in which I'm working to apply this word to my own life, and I'd like to share those with you and maybe encourage you towards the same. The first is this. Repentance is always the place to start, especially when we're seeking new beginnings of some kind. It's a little jarring to read Zechariah start his message with God is angry that's not a great way to start a message right God's angry your ancestors goofed up and you should repent but I want to say to you that as jarring as that can be to read it's actually the right place to start I think it's noteworthy that God does not start with these people saying here's some plans to get that temple done or here's some ways to rebuild the city just like Nehemiah the story begins with a call to repentance I was thinking back to when I was installed here at Hinsdale Covenant, and we used the liturgy that our denomination provides for for the installation. It was really beautiful. And then we had some people come and and pray, and I had a mentor of mine pray. I didn't know what he was going to pray. And something that has stuck out to me, in the midst of that celebration, he actually prayed. He said, and when Lars lets his congregation down, give him grace. And when the congregation lets him down, would you give them grace? And it was a little jarring to hear that, right? It felt a little bit defeatist to begin a journey that way. But what wisdom there is in that? I think it models an attitude of repentance. When we repent, we're turning from something, and then we're turning to God. If today you are feeling discouraged in an in-between place, disconnected from God, depressed, hopeless, overwhelmed, shame-filled, then repentance is the place to begin. To clearly communicate that the things that, that are in front of us are things that we need to turn away from, sins in our lives, undisciplined behaviors, wrong thoughts, wrong priorities, wrong motives, and instead turn to God. We recognize that the places that we've been have been damaging, to us and to those around us, and most of all, to our relationship with God. So we humbly repent, we turn to God, and we receive the promise that he is going to turn away from his righteous anger, and he's going to turn to us in kindness and in mercy. And this, this comes strictly, this comes right against our tendency to, at new beginnings, undergo processes of self-improvement, to set goals and to achieve them to build ourselves up because Scripture constantly gives us the exact opposite model. The model of beginning is being humbled. It's being broken down. It's being brought to your knees. It's giving up so that we can be in right relationship with God. Second, and this one's a little heavy, you are not bound by the sins of those who came before you. We don't talk a lot about generational sin in the church these days, but it's a common theme in Scripture that the sins of previous generations get passed down to us. Some of you sitting here today are all too aware of that truth. Some of you feel stuck in the behaviors that were passed down to you, that were modeled for you. Alcohol and substance abuse, sexual sin, addictive behaviors, Emotional unhealth, mental illness, anger, pride, contempt, critical spirits, gossip. I could go on. And I want to tell you that we never fully escape our family of origin or our DNA or our genogram. They are part of who we are. We carry those things with us, the good of those things and the bad. But scripture still holds the truth, the sin and guilt and disobedience has intergenerational implications for us. But the good news of this passage in that is whether we're speaking of the sins of our own ancestors who we know, specifically, or the sins of our the ancestors in our nation, or our community, or even our church, we are not fated and bound to repeat those sins. The cycle of guilt and sin can be broken, and scripture over and over again says that they can be broken within a generation through repentance and commitment to a covenant relationship with God. One of the true blessings of my work as a pastor has been those moments when I watch men and women, old and young, recognize the sins and the disorders that have been passed down to them, and then they begin to dig in and do the hard work of naming it, repenting of it, owning it, and then breaking the bond of those generational sins. I'm so proud of those people, in part because that work is so incredibly countercultural today. Most of us have grown up in in the West with our hyper-individualistic approach to life and spirituality, but Scripture actually teaches us that we're situated within a broader community and that, that sin is not simply the domain of isolated individuals, it's an ecosystem in which we live. It's a community issue. So for those of you this morning who feel that as I'm talking about it, you feel weighed down, you feel burdened by generational sin, I want you to feast on God's word through Zechariah, which is this. Be honest about those sins of previous generations, name them, repent of them, and receive a fresh vision from God and a new beginning. Hear me clearly. You are not bound to by those old stories lastly last application repentance is a lifestyle and it should be repeated with regularity as I stated it's sort of an anomaly in Zechariah and Haggai that the people respond to the word of God in repentance so quickly that's not normative it's really rare in prophetic literature But as we're going to learn through the book of Zechariah, that initial repentance is not sufficient to sustain them permanently. They waver a ton. They are tempted to run away from God, to stop listening to God. And if we're being honest, I think all of us are tempted that way as well. Scripture does not restrict repentance to simply the beginning of a journey. As Gordon Smith has written, quote, Repentance is a strand in our conversion that remains a continuing and vital element of the spiritual life. Without the abiding presence of repentance in our lives, there is no transformation. Let me say that last part again. Without the abiding presence of repentance in our lives, there is no transformation. Friends, repentance is a vital lifestyle for anyone who desires to follow Jesus Christ. Since we're so tempted on a daily basis to turn away from God and follow other things, repentance is something that we need to do all the time. We should constantly be turning to God and returning to God in our hearts and desiring to be in faithful relationship with him. So those are my applications, friends. We're at the beginning of a wild ride in the book of Zechariah. And starting next week, we're going to start with his first vision, So get ready for apocalyptic horsemen and all sorts of interesting stuff that are coming next week. But to get to the rest of the ride, to get to the fresh vision that God has for you, for us as a community together, the vision of God's coming kingdom and all that it means for us, we are called in this passage to start humbly, to start on our knees, to start with repentance. I know that's a heavy word to start a sermon series. It's kind of a heavy topic today. But we're called to turn our bodies and our eyes and our hearts away from false gods, away from vacant idols, away from selfish desires and ways of disobedience. We begin where God always intends for his people to begin, with a commitment to covenant relationship with him. And we rest in the promise that if we will return to him He will return to us. But if we don't begin with this humility, we will certainly, certainly miss out on the vision that God wants to cast for us as His people. So, I'd like to begin where God calls us to begin as I close in prayer this morning. Would you pray with me? Lord, we hear your call. In this text to repentance, we hear the call to turn from the ways that we have been going, which are not honoring to you, which have had consequences for our lives, and instead to turn to you. We join the people that Zechariah spoke to as they said, You were right to be angry with your people. We haven't held up our end of the bargain. We've let you down. But Lord, we turn our hearts to you. We speak our desire to be in relationship to you. Lord, whatever new beginning it is that we desire, I pray that you would speak loudly your call to repentance. And Lord, I pray for those here today who feel the weight of generational sin, the sins that have been passed down to them, modeled for them. Lord, I pray that you would free the bonds that keep them held. We thank you and you, Lord, that we have a hope for those bonds to be released. We can receive freedom in you and we can start a new path with you. For those who believe the lie that they are stuck in this, Lord, would you come against that lie in your power and in your strength? Would you offer hope? Would you come as a God of mercy and help for those who feel stuck in those cycles of sin? And with so many younger people here today, we pray for this younger generation, that they may turn to you, that this generation may be one that, Breaks the bonds that have been set before them. And Lord, would you impress upon us the need to continue to turn to you. That it is a lifestyle. It is a daily exercise of following you to turn away from those things that divide us. That pull us away from your presence. And return to you in body and heart and in mind. Would you teach us what that means as men and women, boys and girls? Would you teach us what that means as a church? And Lord, as we do this, would you begin to cast a new vision, a fresh vision for us of what it means to be your sons and your Thank mm-hmm.